early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. Welcome, friends. Welcome to Easter Sunday. Now, I don't know when you hear that story. I don't know where that story meets you today. For many of us, that story is everything. It is the absolute definition of our life and our story that Jesus is alive. And that somehow, some way, by the grace and the love of God, that what has happened 2,000 years ago means something world-changing for us in our life today. That is so many of us in here who have come to celebrate. I don't know if that's you. I don't know if you hear that story and you just kind of like the skepticism. You're like, ah, resurrection, raised from the dead. Are we sure? 2022, are we still, that's still the conversation we're having, haven't we kind of? That's not a thing that happens. Those are myths from a bygone era. I don't know if you have questions, if you're cynical today. I don't know if you came in and you're like, I believe this stuff, but it's just not real to me right now. Like, I, I, I've, been, I've been in church. I've been showing up every week. But if I'm honest, like, I don't know what it means for me to be in a relationship with Jesus. I don't have any sense of that right now. The beautiful thing about the resurrection stories that we find in the Gospels is they they don't wait for us to be in a certain place for God to come to us. They come to us, whether we're rejoicing on this day, whether we're mourning on this day, whether we just don't know what we think about all of it on this day. And so that story is an embrace of all of us in this room saying, welcome. And my hope today is if you're not really sure about the idea of Jesus, is to just point to the story, is to bear witness in such a beautiful way that you might say, okay, maybe it's not as implausible as I might have initially suspected. And for those of you who are here to celebrate, you're ready to rejoice, my hope for you is that your imagination would expand as to what it means for Jesus to be alive and what that means for us in our lives right now. Now, if you're skeptical, I, I think it is, important that we do recognize that there are some really legitimate questions that you could ask about a person being raised from the dead. You know, our general lived experience is that that does not happen, right? And the Christian, the central Christian claim is that one time in the center of history, God did in the middle of history what he's going to do at the end of history for every person. And he did it as a witness and a testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus of Nazareth who lived his life as a sinful man, gave his life on a cross, and God vindicated him on the third day, on that Easter Sunday. So if you have questions, there are really good questions. 
about what it means to believe in God. And here's what I want to do. I am not going to try to prove to you that Jesus is alive and resurrected. And if you're thinking, because I can't, you're absolutely right. 100%. There's nothing I could say in this room that would just, beyond any shadow of a doubt, would say, Jesus is alive, you know it, now go from there and live your life in light of that. Jesus didn't set it up that way. There's, there's a faith element to all of this. But I do think when we ask the question, there are some really good reasons to believe that Jesus is alive, that he is exactly who he says he is, and that the church proclaiming this resurrection is not delusional, is not off their rockers, but is living in light of reality. So historically, many leading figures in the Jesus movement, people that were the first to claim that they had seen Jesus alive, many of them gave their lives under violent oppression from the state. So the state is basically saying to them, if you just say that Jesus is not Lord, that he's not alive, we will let you live. However, if you maintain this claim that you have seen Jesus, that he is your Lord and your Savior, then we will exercise a measure of violence and capital punishment. Now, we've all been caught in lies. We've all had that experience where it's like, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not really going to lean into this anymore because I know like, sort of the truth is bearing out. But none of them did that. In the face of death, in the face of violence, they all maintained their claim that they had seen Jesus alive. Now, could they be delusional? Collectively delusional? Of course. But it does say something to the claim, to the weight of their claim, that they're willing to give their lives for it. Now, scientifically, quantum theory has proposed a cosmology. You know, we used to think that, you know, the, the understanding of the universe was that it was expanding and that it would just keep going. But quantum theory has suggested that there will be a big crunch, that this expanding universe will crunch down. And instead of a continual expansion of space-time, there will be a reversal, a contraction, and events and material things will come again as in a re resurrection of everything. Physicist Raymond Chow, who's a follower of the way of Jesus, says this. In this viewpoint, every elementary individual quantum event is a result of a creative act of the universal observer in which he capitalizes to reference God, in which all properties of all particles come into existence on their observation and continual acts of creation ex nihilo, which is creation out of nothing. Now, he is a follower of the way of Jesus. He's interpreted his research as pointing to a creator. And many scientists have interpreted their research in other ways. So again, does that prove anything? Of course not. Now, there are more Christians in the field of high sciences than there are in the humanities. And that, that just says to me that these people that are so trained in observing the way that the world works are often seeing evidence that there is a God. There's something that's making it all move. I love what Albert Einstein talks about when he talks about science. When you get to a certain level, it becomes like art. And as somebody who is uh, much more predisposition towards art. I find great comfort in that. Think about the field of story. Think about the great myths of our day. I use the term myth not to describe something that's inherently false, but something that has this big explanatory power, an epic struggle. J.R.R. Tolkien, one of the masters of myth-making, the, the one who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, he writes about the gospel stories. The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, 
beautiful and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete, conceivable, beautiful turning point. Tolkien uses this word, eucatastrophe, which I've translated for him as turning point because eucatastrophe kind of in the Greek means like good happening, beautiful happening. So we'll call it a beautiful turning point. We'll go on. But this story has entered history in the primary world. The birth of Christ is the beautiful turning point of man's history. The resurrection is the beautiful turning point of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. And none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. The gospel has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, especially the happy ending. Tolkien, throughout his life, wrote these epic stories. And he was trying to say, I'm trying to bear witness to this story that has changed my life, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the story of the ultimate defeat of evil by good, the ultimate triumph of love. When you look at a piece by Vincent van Gogh, it's Starry Night, and when you look at this piece, it's not just that synapses are firing or sort of observing different shades of blue and yellow. There's something this picture does to us. If you stare at it long enough, it begins to form our imaginations. Or you look at this one by local painter and theologian Makoto Fujimura. You just look at it. Why does art do something beyond what we can name? Is it simply utilitarian? Is it simply biological advantage, maybe? Lucille Clifton, as she writes, she says, the green of Jesus is breaking the ground and the sweet smell of delicious Jesus is opening the house and the dance of Jesus' music has hold of the air and the world is turning in the body of Jesus and the future is possible. Why do words, especially poetry, which is the best words in the best order, why do they do this to us? Why do they invite us into a world that's bigger than our own? Or you can think about it from another angle. When you look at the horrors that take place in our world, you look at what's going on in Ethiopia or Ukraine right now, why is there something within us that cries out for justice? That cries out that this is not the way that it should be. That there should be a different order. Something needs to speak to this chaos. What is it within us that does that? Lastly, I think of the moments where I feel the most loved. Those moments where you just know everything is, shall we say, as it should be. Maybe a meal with friends. Maybe a meal with your spouse. And you're just like, this, this is a picture of something. Again, if we're paying attention long enough, we recognize these things. Why is that? Now, friends, I'll be the first to tell you, I am appealing to your emotions, your experience. None of this is empirical or observable. I can't prove to you that Jesus is really risen, and frankly, that's not my job. But today, as we open the story, I just simply want to expand. Is this story beautiful? Is it plausible? Maybe God is wanting to speak to you in a unique way today. Maybe the tomb is really empty. Now, I don't know what your general experience with the Bible is. I think for many of us, even people who grew up in church, our fundamental disposition towards the Bible is that it's a list of rules that God has given us. 
Like if you do the right things, obey these laws, don't, don't cross into these boundaries, you'll be okay. And that's kind of the way that God set it up, kind of arbitrary, divine fiat. But if you actually open the Bible, if you open the scriptures, what you find is something quite different. What you find is a story. A story that's not always like completely clear. A story that's not always, you know, 100% like, okay, I know what to do here or how to behave. A story that's complex, a story that involves us. And today, I want to just dig into these elements of story because one of the things that I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by is how Jesus interacts with us. And one of the amazing things that he does in the gospel stories is he asks questions. He asks these really beautiful and poignant questions, and we're going to look at three of them today. Jesus' first question in the book of John, the first word that Jesus speaks in the, in the book of John, and really, if, if you're looking at literature, when you observe literature, the first, character that a, uh, the first word that a character speaks often has sort of a revelatory effect. It's trying to tell you this is where this story is going. And the first word that Jesus speaks in John's gospel is a question. And he asks two would-be disciples who have noticed in Jesus something deeper going on. He asks them the question, what do you want? What are you looking for? Now I wonder if here, Ecclesia, on this Easter Sunday morning, if you could ask God for anything, what would you ask him for? If he was sitting across the table from you and Jesus of Nazareth says, what do you want? I think the asker of the question would have something to say about the, the answers we gave, right? Like, you know, if you're asking, like, if it was a genie in a bottle, like, what do you want? Like, I want $20 million. That should be about right. But if Jesus is asking the question, that's probably going to dictate the answer a little bit. It's probably going to be an invitation to think deeper. What do I really want? What am I looking for? Now, we often think of our desires as almost like a, like a cosmic game that God is playing. What do you want so I can tell you how wrong you are? And when you express what you want, ha, I see, I told you, your desires are broken and twisted. And that's true to an extent. But often Jesus is trying to appeal to what we really want at the depths of our being. What do you want? St. Augustine said the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life, to be trained by longing. Psychotherapist Kurt Thompson, in his beautiful book, reflecting on the fundamental desires of what it means to be human. The book is called The Soul of Desire. He talks about shared things that we all want. He breaks these into uh, fundamental desires into four S's that I found helpful, kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but with alliteration. So he says, every person longs to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe, and to be secure. We long to be seen. We long to be recognized. Not just for our merit, but for our being. We long to be seen by others. We long to be soothed. You know, the, the sense that it's all going to be okay. We long to be safe. Those fundamental human needs, food, shelter, those things that we need. We long to be secure. That from that place of safety, we can move out into the world and explore. That we can take chances and take risks and know that it's all going to be okay. Kurt Thompson says, you, as in all of us, desire to be known in the deepest recesses of your story so that you will be liberated to become an outpost of new creation, of beauty 
and goodness. We long to be seen. And throughout the scriptures, God is a God who sees. From the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1, God is speaking the world into existence. His words create worlds. Let there be light, and there is light. But God doesn't just stop there. He pauses like any good craftsperson. The thing that he has made, he wants to admire it. And so there's this refrain built into the rhythm of the creation days. As God creates, as he speaks, he then steps back and he evaluates. He sees, and he sees that it is good. And as he makes humankind in his image, daughters and sons, to bear his image in the world, he sees, you and I, that it is very The first person to name God in the scriptures is a slave girl who's fleeing, fleeing the oppressive structure around her, fleeing those who would try to do her harm. She is outside the the, the chosen covenant people, at least as we understand it at that point. And she is running away. She thinks she's running off to die. She's got this newborn child. She thinks she's running to the wilderness to waste away. But an angel of the Lord meets her there in her despair. And asked her another question, where are you going? And this slave girl, upon reflecting on this interaction between heaven and earth, reflects that God is the God who sees. El Roy, he is the first one who sees me, who takes care of me. God sees the plight of those languishing away in slavery. He sees the heart of David, that he is a man after God's own heart. God is looking for those who are faithful to him. God sees The psalmist reflects that whether we go up to heaven or whether we make our bed in hell, God is there. He sees us. He is fulfilling our fundamental human need to be seen. And as we pick up the account of the Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, we find Mary. Mary, a friend of Jesus. One of his most devoted followers. She did not leave Jesus' side when only a few stayed by him as he was crucified. We pick up the story in John 20, verse 11. It says, but Mary, as the others ran off back to their homes, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So the first question that Jesus asks of us today on this Easter Sunday is, what are you looking for? What do you want? The next question we find Jesus asking a disciple on this Easter Sunday morning is, why are you weeping? For Mary, she is weeping because Jesus of Nazareth was the one who saw her. Jesus of Nazareth was her friend. Jesus healed her. He was her teacher. She had walked with him throughout the days of her life for the last three years. And she had seen. She had seen as Jesus was cruelly tortured and executed on a cross by collusion of the imperial authorities of their day and the religious leaders. Mary stood by and she saw And as she comes to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning, she is weeping because not only has Jesus been shamed in his death, not only has he been cruelly undone on a cross, but now it seems 
as though people have plundered the grave of Jesus, further dishonoring him. Mary is weeping. This one that she has placed her hope in is seemingly gone. And friends, our lives disintegrate for so many reasons. Why are you weeping? Perhaps you've experienced your own traumatic loss, a friend, a family member. Perhaps you've experienced tension in your marriage. Perhaps you just don't have the life that you thought you would have. Why are you weeping? We all have those questions, those answers ready. Maybe you carry a burden of shame that you cannot always name. Easter, from the vantage point of all those who woke up on that Sunday morning, started in hopelessness and despair. And I'm not naive. I know that many of you walked, you got up, you got dressed for church, you're in this room, but if you're honest, you walked in here and your day started in hopelessness and despair. Easter is Jesus, the God of the universe, in spite of all that would threaten us, in spite of all that would keep us in bondage, meeting us there. And I think it's so interesting that Mary, Mary is the one who has this encounter with Jesus. You know, Peter and John, it says that they saw, they sort of evaluated what was going on in the tomb, and then they left. But Mary doesn't have the strength to keep going. She lingers at the tomb. She can't go on about her day. She's weeping there. And it's in her grieving and in her weeping that the risen Lord meets her. She doesn't know it's him yet, but meets her and says, why are you weeping? And friends, this tells us that God meets us uniquely in our grieving. And in our despair, Nicholas Wolterstorff says, I shall look at the world through tears, and perhaps I shall see things that the dried-eyed could not see. Jesus asked Mary, why are you weeping? But he's got one more question. He asks her, in the second part of verse 15, he says, who are you looking for? Now, Jesus has good grammar. He says, whom are you looking for? But I'm a preacher, and that doesn't work as well. So who are you looking for? <laughs> Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary was looking in that garden tomb for the body of a dead man. Mary was looking to grieve, to be angry, to despair. Nobody, certainly not Mary, went to the tomb that day expecting to meet with a surprise of resurrection. Nobody was camped outside Jesus' tomb. Throughout the, the gospel stories when Jesus is telling them on the third day he will rise again, nobody understands what he's talking about. This was not their expectation. This was so far removed from what they thought the story was going to be. And Mary is there. And she meets the person that she mistakes for the gardener. <laughs> nice little detail. Yet the scriptures don't really allow for unnecessary details. Where did the story begin? It begins in a garden. The new creation world, unpolluted by our sinfulness and brokenness, is a place where God is present in a garden. And Mary supposes the risen Jesus to be the gardener. Now in a garden tomb where we expect to find the same cycle of death and decay, where we expect to find the same cycle of cause and effect, what we find is the surprise and the wonder of love. As Jesus addresses his question, watch what happens. Jesus asked her, he said, who are you looking for? 
And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary was the first one to announce the resurrection. And just as the words created the world anew in the beginning, as God pronounced, let there be light, now a word creates the world anew. The first word of the new world is an even more intimate word than the word that was spoken in the beginning. As God said, let there be, now he says a name, a name of one of his friends. He says, Mary. And nothing would ever be the same again. As Mary recognizes that all that she had despaired over is becoming untrue. That everything sad is becoming false because Jesus has overcome the grave. Mary. You see, Jesus asked the question, who are you looking for? But perhaps we should turn the question around upon God. Those same questions that Jesus asked throughout his life. What do you want? Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? What if we were to ask God those questions? Because what we see in the life and the death and the resurrection is that we can know. We can know what God is looking for. What is God looking for? He's looking for the world to be made right in the power of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's looking for us to know that there is nothing that could ever separate us from his great love. Not height, not depth, not angel, not demon, not life or death. Because of what Jesus has accomplished on this Easter Sunday morning. What does God want? He wants the world made whole. Verse 19 of John chapter 20, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed upon them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks peace to the disciples. He speaks peace to us. You see, God's peace is not just a nice interior feeling, not just that feeling we have when things are going well for us. God's peace is this holistic shalom. It's this all-encompassing peace that God invites us into where our lives are reintegrated under the love of God. All that we want and are looking for, our desires our desire to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe and secure, all met in the risen Jesus. Our desire for beauty and goodness and truth and justice to win out, all met in the resurrection of Jesus. Our desire to spend more time with our loved ones, to capture those moments when we know everything is as it should be, extended to eternity because of the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. This is God's peace. This is the peace that awaits us at the end that is now meeting us in the middle of the story and inviting us to live in light of it right here and right now you see God has revealed his desires to us what is God looking for he wants the world to be made new why is God weeping well Jesus throughout his life weeps over the city that he loves as he stands outside of Jerusalem but he also stands outside the friend of the tomb of a friend his friend Lazarus 
and he sees the grieving that's taking place, and he weeps in that space. And he says in that moment, he offers the divine name, I am. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. But here on the Easter Sunday morning, as Mary is outside the tomb, he doesn't offer divine theology. He offers intimate relationship as he speaks the name of one of his friends, Mary. Who is God looking for? He's looking for his friends. He's looking for you and for I. He is speaking our names today, saying, resurrection is not just something that happened. It is something that happened. Ecclesia, he is risen. And that has all the world-shaking significance, all the cosmic big story stuff, but it also meets you as small and as intimate as a whisper of your name. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Show us what God wants. He wants you. And on this Easter Sunday morning, we hear these questions addressed to us as an invitation to see the world rightly, to see the truth of all the world, that the truth is not in the bad news of death, decay, and despair, but the truth is in what Jesus has done on that Easter Sunday morning. Let us pray. Jesus, God, may we see, God, that when you express your desires, Lord, you don't just express a desire as in something you hope will happen, God, but your hope comes in the form of your very self. Jesus, that what you want, you pursue relentlessly. God, and you've shown us that through your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, that you've gone to the ends of the earth. You've gone to the uttermost bounds. Lord, you've gone into exile that you would bring us home, that there would be rejoicing, Lord Jesus. So, God, I just turn this room over to you. God, I say just speak the, speak the names of your friends. God, that we would see that this Easter story is not just about some curiosity that happened, but it's an invitation to live in reality right now. It's an invitation to healing and wholeness, God, to dried eyes right here and right now. And in anticipation of that final day, God, when you will wipe every tear from our eyes, when the last enemy, that is death, will be defeated, God. And we will live with you together forevermore. You're alive. Help us to see the beauty of that truth. Lord Jesus, we love you. Pray all these things in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.